The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief, moments of growth, and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. It's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns, and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And for Spirituality and Health podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash spirituality health. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Sarah Bowen, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Today, we are flipping the script on this podcast. Rather than Rabbi Rami interviewing a guest, he will be the guest and I will interview him. Rabbi Rami is a contributing editor at Spirituality and Health Magazine and host of this podcast. He is also an award-winning author of over 36 books. His new book is Judaism Without Tribalism, A Guide to Being a Blessing to All the People of the Earth. Welcome, Rabbi Rami. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be on my own show. It's wonderful to be here with you. Well, I know thank that- you for doing this. Sure. Many of your listeners likely know a lot about you already from your writing here at Spirituality and Health and from this podcast and your many other books. But for those who may be new to the podcast, let's give them a bit of context. In your bio for Judaism Without Tribalism, you state this, I'm a Jew. I'm not Jew-ish. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, I'm annoyed when by by the term Jewish. And I realize it's really nitpicking. I mean, people are British. You know, it's, does, it's not a negative thing. But the ish at the end of Jew always sounds like I'm hedging my bets. Mm. You know, I'm a Jew. Some people think that's neut- or neutral regarding that. Some people are positive. Some people are negative. But when I say Jewish, then I always want to have to say, well, how ish are you? <laughs> you know, what kind of, what, how committed are you? I'm just a Jew. So I just like that sort of frank, blank, unequivocal statement that, yeah, I'm a Jew. My father was a Jew. My mother was a Jew. It goes all the way back to, I used to think, Abraham and Sarah, but I did one of those Ancestry.com <laughs> things. Just to check. And I don't seem to have any Middle Eastern connection. So somewhere in Eastern Europe, somebody must have converted. And that's where I, my, my lineage started, I guess. Well, that that raises a great question, too, right from the title of your book. What is tribalism, and why do you find it problematic? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a member of a tribe. Jews are a tribe. And for me, and I define this in the book, it's an odd kind of tribe because you can join it. 
you can, you know, convert into it. I think of it more as an extended family, but tribe is fine. Tribe makes sense given our history. So I belong to a tribe, but tribalism is when I make a fetish out of the tribe, when the whole point is the tribe. The point of Judaism isn't Judaism. The point of Judaism is to help you be a blessing to all the families of the earth, if we're going to quote from Genesis 12, verse 3. But tribalism is when the whole point of Judaism is just to be Jewish, is to, you know, and that, that really bothers me as well. So I caught that thread throughout the book, and I noticed your voice, of course. You have a very distinct writing voice. And so I caught that throughout the book, this combination of, you know, really grounded knowledge and deep love of your tradition paired with a critical edge. So I experienced the book as, as partly a manifesto and then part a really kind of detailed, useful guidebook. So I'm really curious, can you tell me why did you write the book? And what do you hope people will take away from it? I wrote the book because I think that Judaism, along with other religions, in fact, all of them, is suffering from an existential crisis of ethno-nationalism. That, that, you know, going back to this tribalism thing where, you know, Judaism is simply, it has been reduced in many circles to a tribalist, self-inward-focused, us-versus-them kind of mentality. I think you see, you see the same thing in Christianity, especially in the, in the right wing of Christianity. You see the same thing in Buddhism in, in some countries, and certainly in Modi's India, where the religion has been replaced by this ethno-nationalism. And I just wanted to slap that back if I could. And so you know, maybe I went too far. Some people might think I went too far, but I was really pushing back on this whole notion that seems, it's not racist because Jews aren't a race, but it's race, uh, racist adjacent in a sense. So who am I? What do I hope people take away from this? What I hope people take away from this is the fact that Judaism was given to the Jews. If you want to stick with the you know, classic, I don't, take any of this literally. But if you take the conventional view of Judaism, you know, God chose the Jews and gave the Jews Torah, you know, God's teaching. So Judaism was given to the Jews, but not for the Jews. The whole idea is that Jews are supposed to be or legoyim, light to the nations, that we're supposed to set this standard that people can look up to. In the prophet Micah, everybody realizes that they're going to go to the same holy mountain, though each one with their own god or goddess. It's not like everyone's going to become Jewish. That's never part of the Jewish self-image or the Jewish mission. It's not you know, Christianity in that way at all. But everyone comes to the same central point, you know, to the same unnameable deity, and they all bring their own names with them. And what they get is this realization that what God wants, I'm sticking with Micah, what God wants is for us to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. God wants everyone to, you know, God wants nations to stop, you know, what is it, to pound their sores into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They don't, we shouldn't be studying war anymore. I mean, it's very apropos to this moment 
though the question is, is it just pie in the sky? And then Micah says, you know, where everyone sits under her vine and fig tree and no one makes her afraid. That it's a world at peace and a world where people are, can live self, you know, can provide for themselves and live unafraid. That's what Judaism came to teach. But my fear is they've dropped the universal message for this self-focused tribalism. So within the book, to get away from that, to to practice Judaism without tribalism, there are two guiding and foundation foundational principles that you talk about that I think are really beautiful. The first one is teshuvah, and the second is tikkun. So can you define those? Tell us why they matter. How do we practice them? Why are these so foundational to the type of Judaism that you're describing? So these are foundational to my Judaism because of an odd thing that happened in Amsterdam. Oh, do tell. Yeah, here's the story. <laughs> so years and years ago, I was invited to give a lecture to a group of people called the Children of Holocaust Survivors. And this was a, you know, across Europe, this is a multinational gathering of people who get together every year to, you know, to build community and to share the experience of their parents and try to, I guess you might say, help. It's like a support group for people suffering from the trauma of the show-off of the Holocaust that their parents went through. So I was invited to, to come to Amsterdam and to give a talk on something. I don't even remember what it was. And I was living and they gave me this really nice apartment. It must have been someone's apartment and they were on vacation. So I got to stay in this apartment just a few doors down from the Anne Frank house. So it was a great location. And I'm in this apartment. I get a phone call from the woman who's managing my trip. And she says, there's a rabbi from Israel who heard I was in town and he wants to meet me. Could I make time for him? So I said, absolutely. And I wait, you know, we set up a time. I didn't talk to the guy beforehand. This woman set it all up. So we set up this time to meet. I'm waiting in my apartment. There's a knock on the door. I let the guy in. He walks in, doesn't sit down, doesn't take off his coat. You know, I was prepared with tea and, you know, you know, but no, he's not interested. He doesn't want to stay at all. He has one question and then he's going to leave. And he said to me, without any, I'm giving more of an intro than he gave me, without any fanfare, he says, you know, what's the heart of Judaism? And I went blank. Not that I didn't, I had an answer, not that I, but it wasn't a thought out answer. It wasn't something I had come up with before. I mean, there are lots of examples, you know, when the Roman soldier 2,000 years ago asks Hillel basically the same question, and he answers with the golden rule. What's hateful to you, don't do to somebody else. I knew those things. I just went blank. My palate was clean, you know? And I entered what the Buddhists called don't know mind. And I simply (laughs) responded to the question fresh. And what popped out of my mouth was teshuvah and tikkun. That's it. And he said, okay, what, you know, what are those? And I said, teshuva is, because it means to return. In Orthodox Judaism, it means to return to Orthodox practice. But the word means to return. My use of it is, it's to return to your true nature as 
a divine manifesting of God, and we can get into what that means later. So teshuva is to return to your true nature as the divine, and tikkun means to heal or to repair. So you return to your true nature, and then you engage the world in such a way as to promote healing, or again, from Genesis 12, 3, to promote being a blessing to all the families of the earth. So I told the guy, teshuva and tikkun, I thought maybe we'd have a discussion. He says, thank you. He turns around, walks out, never heard from him again. Wow, that is a story. Isn't that weird? (laughs) I mean, I'm assuming, you know, if I was really sort of more narcissistic than I am and more inclined to fantasy than I am, I would have told you it was the prophet Elijah that came. You know, there's all these stories about Elijah visiting people. So it was some mystical encounter with an angel who came to to help me bring out my revelation of Teshuvah and Tikkun. But it wasn't. It was just some guy. And But the gift was going into that don't-know mind and then hearing this for the first time. I had not thought about it. I was not, I knew what it meant and I knew why it was right, but it wasn't something I had thought about before. It was brand new to me. So... How do we practice those? If I'm someone who wants to pick up on these ideas that you have, how do I return and heal? So, in a sense, I have to now disprove what I just said or disagree with what I just said, which is very Jewish, right? So, they say two (laughs) Two Jews, Jews, three three opinions. opinions. Right, so so (laughs) here, one Jew, two opinions. So, in a sense, return is a misnomer because you can't, you can't escape from your true nature. So you're basically just becoming who you already are. You don't become something new, but you become what you already are. But the idea is, how do you practice that? I mean, Judaism, I'm going to stick to Judaism. Right I could, we could talk about Buddhist practice and Hindu practice. But in, in Judaism, there are numerous practices for, re, for realizing your true nature. One of them... Well, actually, let me, to be kind to the listener, let me back this up and talk about God for a second, because your true nature is God. And the Hebrew Bible gives us two, many words for God, but two that are crucial in this book, but in my life and to what I'm talking about. When Moses encounters God at the burning bush, and to me, these are all stories, not histories. But when Moses encounters God at the burning bush, Moses says, so you know, what do I call you? What do I tell people? Who do I tell people I was talking to? And God said, the, God reveals two names. The first name God reveals is Ehia, or Ehia Asher Ehia, which most Bible, English Bibles translate as I am that I am, which is very static and not at all what the Hebrew suggests. Ehia is a verb, not a noun. It's the first person singular imperfect form of the verb to happen or to be. So God says, I am the never, I am the ceaseless eyeing of the universe. I am the eye that is behind everything. And then, because that is so esoteric, whoever wrote the story has God say, but wait, there's more. (laughs) And he says, wait, don't tell the people. They're not going to understand that. So tell them, and he gives them the unpronounceable name, which is, you know, in English, Y-H-V-H or yod Hey vav Hey in Hebrew, what most Bibles translate as Lord, which is, again, totally wrong and misleading. 
YHVH is also a form of the verb to be, where Ehye is the first person singular, YHVH is the third person singular. So it's the happening is all happening in the universe. So when you're returning to the divine, you're returning to this concept of Ehye, where you can, where your I, yourself, shifts from this, the lowercase s self to the uppercase s self. In Hebrew, well, I don't want to get too bogged down in the Hebrew, but in, in English, the Jewish term would be shifting from narrow mind to spacious mind. And when you make that shift to the capital S self, you realize that Ehia is who you are, that you are God the way a wave is the ocean. I mean, you know, it's a part of God, not all of God. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It's beautiful. So one way to, to realize that is, to, it's like a mantra. And the text is, it's from the Psalms, it's Shiviti, and then it's the yud heh that's unpronounceable, so the rabbis have lots of euphemisms. The one that I prefer is Shekhinah, means the presence of mm. God. I like it because it's yeah. feminine. Yep. So it says, Shefiti Shechina Lanegdi Tamid. Literally, it means I place the divine in front of me, before me, always. Not before me as in more important than me, but wherever I look. Present with you. Yeah. 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 Wherever I look, whatever I see is the yod heh is the happening of God. As you make this your mantra, you realize that the I that is perceiving this is the ehia. And so you focus first on, you know, I perceive the divine around me always. And then at some point you realize the I that's perceiving is also the divine. And so it's mantra work, basically, that leads you from narrow mind to spacious mind, small s self to capital S self. And it's the return to your true nature, which is the happening of God. Beautiful. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief, moments of growth, and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. It's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And for Spirituality and Health podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash spiritualityhealth. I would love to spend an hour right there, Rami, but I know that we don't have that. So what I'm wondering is from that place of that kind of divine aliveness, you know, that you're talking about, you know, where do we get to blessing? Where do we get to tikkun? What is that kind of piece of healing work that's the second half of your title? And I think in a really important, perhaps more practical piece of what you're writing about as well, that that beautiful mixture of the beingness and the doingness. Could I go that far to say that? Yeah, yeah. First of all, you're right. It's absolutely more practical. And second, it's in the doing that you get to know the ehia, right? So, so you, hmm. if you wait for enlightenment, <laughs> then you're just going to wait forever. You're just going to be. We're just going to be waiting, yeah. right? You're just going to be waiting, and you can't force enlightenment. It's an act of grace, but you can 
practice a mantra or other kinds of meditation and prepare yourself for that grace when and if it comes. But you can do the tikkun part, the healing part, being about being a blessing part, even if you aren't completely awake to your true nature as a manifesting of God. And the way you do that is to see what needs to be done in the moment. So there's this understanding that each moment presents us with something only we can do. Don't know what it is. It's not an abstraction. So the other night I was talking about this and I said, you know, I walk my dog several times a day and there is that moment when you know, the reality presents me with the obligation to pick up her poop and put it in the bag and throw it away. It's not anywhere near, you know, curing COVID or polio or anything like that. It seems incredibly mundane, but it's what reality gives you to do in the moment. If you can do it, if you do what's asked of you in the moment, no matter how mundane it is, you're participating in the healing of the world. So I'm trying to be as prosaic about it as possible. Sometimes it can be something very heavy, but I think most of the time it isn't. Most of the time it's holding the door for somebody. It's not letting the elevator door close and, you know, wait, you know, keeping that open, making eye contact with strangers. It's helping the homeless or, you know, th those kinds of things. But, in a, and again, it could be a very prosaic way, just you know, I'm not saying you somehow cure the problem of, of or, or fix the problem of homelessness, but you engage with the homeless in a way that's honoring of them. And maybe that means giving them money. Maybe that means giving them coupons for food, maybe or shelter. Maybe it means just saying, making eye contact and talking to them. So I can't tell anybody what the right move is or what the right thing to do is. Whatever it is that you're called to do comes out of your being present in that moment. There's another mantra practice in Judaism where the mantra is hineni. It's, it means literally, here I am. It's what Abraham and Moses say when they're confronted by God. But in a more general sense, it's simply being present to the moment. And practicing hineni, it can be done as a mantra, but it can also be done as you move into another moment, simply say, hineni, here I am and not be distracted by whatever's going on in your head. So I use it for anxiety. Really? When I start to feel yeah, when I start to feel that my heartbeat is going too fast or something's going on or I'm starting to get, you know, a little outside of my body, I use it as a practice to say I'm here, ground me in Amy. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You're asking for someone to ground you. Or to, yeah, the divine to be grounded and a reminder that, you know, here I am. Don't spin off into the present, don't spin off into yeah, the into the past. Yeah. That's how I understand it. Here I am. Yeah. Yeah, right. Here I am with the anxiety, with the fear, <laughs> with <laughs> with the holy mess. Here right, I am. Right, with the whole yeah. the whole and holy mess uh -huh. and not trying to escape. And when we don't try to escape, this is my take. When we don't try to escape, the moment itself doesn't give you an out, it gives you an in. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, come in this way. Because yeah. we're, we're I'm maybe terrified is too strong a word, but we're afraid to go in. So we're trying to escape. But, you know, Pema Chodron says there is no escape. But from the Jewish perspective, yes, there is no escape. And there is a way to, to go in. But first you have to be present. And that's the Hineni idea. 
Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. So we've talked being, we've talked a little doing. I'd love to ask you about listening. Because when I began attending Shabbat services, you know, this idea of singing the Shema, the statement about listening, touched me just deeply in my soul and has remained a practice. And you talk about it a little in the book. You talk about the importance of listening. Could you tell us why you think it's so important and perhaps what we should be listening for? Yeah, great question. So I think, you know, when you... Depends what synagogue you're in, but you know, it could, it, you, you could read the Shema, you know, hear, O Israel, or listen, O Israel. I'm going to give you the classic, the Lord our God, right? Which is terrible translation, but still. I use a little non classic. <laughs> yeah, but just so that the listener gets the Lord our yeah. God, the Lord is one. And it's an affirmation. And it's just saying, you know, pay attention, pay attention. Here comes the message the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Let's move on. But I don't hear it that way. I don't think that's what it was about. I think it is, listen, and Israel isn't just the Jew. Israel is a a name. It means one who wrestles with God, or one who, I would say, one who wrestles with life, with the absolute, with all the big questions and all the, what you were calling the holy mess. And that's everybody. So listen, everybody, the aliveness of the universe is your true nature. And this aliveness is non-dual. It's all there is. And so what you're listening for is, it sounds odd though, you're listening for this non-dual aliveness. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second. And then right after you say the Shema, it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. And that's a crazy statement. You can't command love. You shall love. I mean, I remember growing up when my sister and I were fighting, my mother says, you will love your sister, right? And it works perfectly when they say that, right? right? It always works. (laughs) You can't command love. So I look at the Shema and the, it's called the Via Hafta, and you shall love the portion that comes after. And I think it's an if then. If you listen to the oneness, then you will love the oneness the whole mess. I think listening is intrinsic to loving. I think when you ask people in, I mean, everyone's different, of course, but, you know, if you go to counseling, you know, or you talk to people, you know, what's the most most important thing that makes you feel loved? And lots of people say, well, she listens to me, or he listens to me, or they listen to me. And listening is a very powerful act if it's done well. It makes you absolutely vulnerable because you're listening to whatever is coming your way. It is a humbling thing because you're not defended. You can't say, well, wait, let me say this. No, you're listening. So listening is makes you very vulnerable. And in that vulnerability, you experience love. So what, you know, when you're doing, so, so let's go back to this, you know, what you're listening for this oneness. There is in Judaism, 
but also in Hinduism and Buddhism, a notion of an actual primal sound that you can hear, physically hear. In, in the Hindu tradition, it's called, the practice is called nada yoga, sound yoga. And they oftentimes provide a sound like om. But in Judaism, the sound is spoken of as what's called in like King James Bible, the still small voice, or maybe more accurately, the fragile voice of silence. But it, we're not told what it sounds like. But if you practice listening, and I'll tell you what that is in a second, you will hear something, I don't know if the word is behind or around or permeating, I don't know how to put it spatially, but you will hear a sound in addition to everything else you're hearing. And that sound is a steady, it's not exactly a hum, it's not tinnitus, just this, this high sound that you can take refuge in. And when you take refuge in it, according to the Bible, you find yourself asked the question, why are you here? I mean, it's all coming back to Hineni being present and doing what has to be done in the moment. But the practice of listening also strengthens the muscle of, of taking your place in, your, you know, in the moment that you're in. I, again, I don't know how much this makes sense, but when the practice itself is just listening, you sit quietly. I use the Shema as a mantra to sort of settle, but eventually you stop anything going on consciously in your head and you just listen. So you hear the sound of the birds, you hear the sound of rustling leaves of the trees, you hear dogs barking, you hear chattering of people if there's people around, you hear traffic noises. Whatever you hear, it just comes in because hearing is a receptive act. You're not, you can't block anything out. Or I guess you could block everything out with noise canceling headphones. But if you're just listening, everything comes in. Now, it's not the kind of listening you do in certain kinds of mindfulness meditation where you hear a dog bark and you say, ah, noise or sound of dogging, of barking dog. You don't do any labeling. You're just listening. And eventually, and it doesn't take, well, this is my experience, but I've been doing this forever. Eventually, you hear this other sound and you don't have to, it doesn't drive out anything else. You don't have to get rid of the, ex, the ambient noise. It's, it's this sound, this fragile sound of silence. It's not coming from anywhere, but I'm not producing it myself either. It's neither in my head or outside my head. It has no direction. It's just a sound that is permeating everything. And once I hear it, I can, I'm, I'm going to say rest in it because I don't know what else to say, but I can just relax into it. And that sound is deeply centering. And then again, it's a, an act of hineni. It, it makes you, it helps you become absolutely present to the divine happening in you and as you and around you and reveals what has to be done in any given moment. Sometimes, because this is a meditation practice, sometimes what has to be done is nothing, just sit and stay, you know, just sit and listen. But when you're out in the world, 
when you've exercised this capacity to listen in this way, you'll find yourself drawn to the sound of the universe or the divine sound that permeates the universe and placed in the moment, the immediacy of the moment, where you can say, Hineni, and affect some kind of tikkun, some kind of healing action that only you can do because you are there. Rami, that was just beautiful. And you almost lulled me into this wonderful little space of meditation where I didn't come back. <laughs> I almost put you to sleep. Hopefully the and listeners no, not, are not, not having just, the same problem. Not to sleep, just, you know, this beautiful sense of, you know, that's what the present moment is. And that's something that we just hunger for. And no, I'm aware I think that... That's, I think that's true. Let me just add something. Yeah. I think it's true. And then I think we complicate it. Oh, of course we do. And what I'm offering, and what I think Judaism is offering, and other traditions, but you know, I'm doing it from a Jewish perspective, what Judaism is offering is something very simple. I mean, Judaism has really complex things to do, but that's more in the cultural end. When we're talking spirit, the things that we are given to do are very simple and yet very profound. Can we talk about one other aspect of the blessing? I know our, our, we're running out of time, but the notion of the 36... Oh, yes, please do, because I love this. You write in the book that at any given time, at least 36 people are actively engaged in being blessings. And I was just struck by 36. Why 36? Can you tell us about that? And can anyone be part of that 36? Yes, anyone. This is a throwaway line in the thousands and thousands of lines that comprise the Talmud, the anthology of rabbinic teachings that spans centuries. There's this Rabbi Abaye in the fourth century who, apropos to nothing, because I, you know, you can read the whole text that he, that this sentence shows up in. He's not mentioned. He's not involved in the conversations, which is really what the Talmud is all about. It's transcripts of conversations. And all of a sudden he just says, you know, there are always 36 people, the way he puts it is there are always 36 people awake to Shekhinah, awake to the presence of God. Now I think it's the feminine presence of God, but he says, because he doesn't say God, he says Shekhinah. He says, always 36 people, it could be Jews, non-Jews, there's no limit here, 36 people awake to the presence of God, and because they're awake to the presence of God, they're doing the work, you know, they're doing the work of tikkun, they're doing the work of being a blessing. Why 36? So in the Talmud, he tells you, he cites a text where it references God as him, which in Hebrew is lo, two Hebrew letters, lamed and vav. And in, in Judaism, the alphabet does double duty as numbers. So every Hebrew word has a numerical value attached to it. So the lamed Every Hebrew letter has a numerical value and every Hebrew word has a, a arithmetic sum. So Lamed, the letter Lamed is the number 30 and the letter Vav is the number six. So he talks about God as him and says, therefore, there has to be, which adds up to 36. So therefore, he gets the number 36. My own understanding of it, though, is much different. Sticking with this gematria, this numerology, the word in Hebrew for life is chai. And chai is the number 18. The letter chet is eight, and the yud, the I sound at the end, is 10. So it's the letter 18. That's why when Jews give monetary gifts, they give <laughs> when $18, we write dollars, checks, right. 36, right? <laughs> 72. You, you try to do it in a denomination of 18 for life. 
or l'chaim, you know, to life. So my take is that he, the number 36 speaks not to a specific number of people, but to people who are living on two dimensions. One dimension is they're living for themselves. The other is they're living for others. They've reached that place where they realize that self and other are both manifestings of the divine. And so they're operating for their own well-being and for the well-being of others. And it's not just humans, for the well-being of the planet as a whole, even. So he says there's always 36. My, in, in the fourth century afterwards, the belief was that you're born one of these people and you live as one till you die. And then when they call them Lamed Vavniks, which is the number for 36. And when one Lamed Vavnik dies, another baby Lamed Vavnik is born somewhere. I don't, I, that doesn't move me. That seems a little risky <laughs> that if we need 36 people, I'm not going to rely <laughs> on, you know, somebody figuring out that they're one of them. My take is that there are always 36 people doing this somewhere on the planet, in different places, obviously, on the planet. And they do it for that moment. They say hineni to that moment. They do an act of tikkun, whatever that act happens to be, whatever the moment presents them to do, they do it. And then maybe they stick with it for another moment, or maybe they get distracted and, you know, go have, you know, go have lunch or something and they forget. But when they step out of that mindset, someone else steps in somewhere else on the planet. So there's always a minimum of 36, but they're not the same 36 people from birth to death. And then, the, so that means that you could be one of the 36. Every time you are present to the moment, hear what, yeah, hear what th that moment is, is giving you to do or know, be aware of what that moment is giving you to do and do it, you're a Lamed Vavnik. You're acting as a blessing to all the families of the earth. And then you'll get distracted. So don't worry about it. Oh my God. Now I, I didn't. Somebody else will pick it up. Someone else will pick up yeah. the slack. Yeah. And then, but you want to stay in the loop because, you know, some, at some point, someone else is going to step out and maybe you need to step back in. So, and there's no coach. Nobody says, come on, coach, put me in, right? And they send you in the game. It's just being aware. And because you don't know if you're, you know, if you're called, you do it as, you know, you try to stay aware, as aware of this as you can, but you're not responsible for the whole game. That's a beautifully profound and practical idea, Rami. There's so much in this book. I wish we had another hour or two or three or 36 to go <laughs> through it. And But I want to, you know, kind of wrap up with this. You say something in the very, very beginning of this book that touched me. You say, I invite you to read this book slowly and consider its teachings carefully. There really is so much in here that we didn't even get to tonight. You talk about different Jewish practices and the ways that you put aliveness into those and ways of working with holidays and different thoughts. And there's just so much to unpack. So we just scratched the surface, folks. Please pick up a copy of the book and give it a read. Our guest today, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, is the author of Judaism Without Tribalism, A Guide to Being a Blessing to All the People of the Earth. You can learn more about his work on his website, www.rabbirami.com. Rabbi Rami, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health Podcast, and thanks as well to our producer, Ezra Baker Trupiano. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a five-star review on your podcast app 
And if you're not already a subscriber to the Spirituality and Health magazine, please subscribe at spiritualityandhealth.com. Thank you so much, Rabbi Rami. Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health podcast. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at Spirit Health Mag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief, moments of growth, and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. It's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And for Spirituality and Health podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash spiritualityhealth. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.